Corner Kick fam, welcome back to Corner Kick. I feel like a lot of the time we start off these shows by talking about what an action-packed week we've just witnessed, but it seems like this week somehow managed to be even more action-packed than usual, whether that's because of the managerial carousel getting into action uh, for the second time in the Premier League, or the death of a monarch, or the return of European football. There is so much to talk about and so much to break down, uh, having seen many games and off-field incidents in the last week. But I am Nathan Strauss. I am joined by a man who would probably do better at right back than Trent Alexander-Arnold right now. It is Nick Govinden. It is. And I love the way that you've ranked, you've like triaged those three things. First is Thomas Tuchel. Second (laughs) is the passing of Queen Elizabeth. And third is the return of of the Champions League and the Europa League. It's good to know uh, where Nathan Strauss's priorities lie. Uh, but we are also joined by a man uh, whose team enjoyed uh, Pilsen the same way many enjoy Pilsners. Uh, it is Caleb Rhodes. Yes. Um, I mean, we needed the win. We got the win. And Chavi Ball is working a treat so far. Happy to be here. So I think we we sort of settled on an agenda, uh, you know, pre-match. Or not pre-match, but pre-recording. Jeez. Uh, because there is so much to talk about. But... I think the biggest thing uh, that happened this week, Nick, as you mentioned, was uh, Chelsea going back to their old Chelsea ways and sacrificing a manager who won them a Champions League uh, just, you know, under 18 months ago uh, after a 1-0 defeat, a a bad 1-0 defeat uh, to Dinamo Zagreb in Zagreb. Uh, Thomas Tuchel, who was given about $200 to spend this summer, has been dismissed and Graham Potter who led Brighton to 13 points from their first 15 possible uh, this season, a man who was managing in Sweden only a couple of years ago, uh, takes the helm. So I'm a fan of the appointment. I'm not a fan of the dismissal. I'm curious where you guys think we should start on this because I was pretty shocked that, uh, you know, Todd Bowley uh, was willing to, to bring out his axe so soon into his tenure. Well, it's funny how the more things change, the more things stay the same. Another Chelsea manager is gone out the door somewhat prematurely. Uh, this time it's Thomas Tuchel who brought a Champions League to the club. However, I think, you know, we've been somewhat critical of Chelsea on this podcast this season. They missed out on two trophies last season. Their football has somewhat been deteriorating under Tuchel for quite some time. However, you know, he still has a pretty good win percentage as Chelsea manager uh, in the 60s. And I think was clearly feeling like he had been backed by the club this summer to the tune of 300 million pounds on the likes of Wesley Fofana, Kalidou Koulibaly, Raheem Sterling, and more recently, his man in Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And I think, Nathan, you and I talked about this a bit this afternoon. And it's so, the just the arranging of this from Todd Bowley is so bizarre. And I think it speaks to his inexperience in the game of soccer and also just like a little bit of um i think naivety somewhat when it comes to what he actually wants out of Chelsea and i think i think Todd Bowley if you're taking over a new club 
Like he's always going to want his people surrounding him. Obviously, we saw last summer Petr Cech and Marina Gradaskaya leave the club. You know, two staples of the past five to seven years of Chelsea. Um, Petr Cech even longer. Um, so I think Intabuli replaced him with with you know his own people, and he's very much running the show from a sporting director standpoint as sort of a GM, quote unquote. And I think if you're Thomas Tuchel, you're probably wondering, you know, how long it's going to be until, until you know, you're also replaced by someone that Todd Bowley handpicks. And I think it's definitely coming a bit earlier than I anticipated. I anticipated that it would probably happen this season, especially if Chelsea's performances didn't improve. However, I think the natural order of things would have been for Thomas Tuchel to make his departure in the summer, Todd Bowley to find Graham Potter or Maurizio Pochettino or whoever it may have been in the summer, bring him into the club, and then give that manager $300 million or however much to mold the squad into what they wanted it to be. Because Graham Potter is now left with the remains of Thomas Tuchel's squad and the specifications for the players that he really wanted and that would suit his system. So I think if you're Potter, you know, you're walking into this job. He's been given a five-year contract. So clearly there's a level of commitment to him from the club. Obviously at Chelsea, you know, commitment means very little. Um, at least under Abramovich it did. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how long he gets to implement his style, um, what moves he decides to make in January. It's a weird time to come into a club right after the transfer window. But we've obviously seen Brighton overperform um, our expectations for them this season early well, this not season not my expectations for them no not at all like, you've even spot on a brighton and i think we're all <laughs> <laughs> i think we're all sort of sort of um on the brighton wave and i think we all have touted potter to be you know a next big coaching name and i think this is going to be truly the test for him in a tumultuous environment which we all know to be chelsea football club yeah i think the the thing though with potter and the thing that has made his tenure at brighton so effective though as you know, Nathan has so ably pointed out um, was his ability to very intelligently recruit um, and to recruit for a very specific system with very specific specifications. Whether he can do that with, you know, just one of his former players in Cucurella um, is yet to be seen. But I agree with, you know, basically everything you said Nick, in terms of the dynamics at play, it's a bit of an odd time um, to do it. Also, obviously, Chelsea have not been in excellent form this year. They've yet to win consecutive games. But their Champions League group, if you look at it, is not all that deep. You know, it's themselves, Zagreb, Milan, and Salzburg. I think, you know, Chelsea and Milan are well clear of the other two and so i think it's still in all likelihood even if he stayed that they would make it out of this group they also as you mentioned just got abemiang and we had been talking about how there was this sort of gaping hole in terms of having an actual striker and i think not giving him even a few games to see how he can actually you know build an offense that's functional from these pieces um, is a little short-sighted and so once again I think Bully seems quite kind of green to club management, et cetera, et cetera. And I think Potter is a really good manager. And so I think he can do really good things at the club. But I'm not sure this game 
you know, a one nil win against, or sorry, <laughs> one nil loss against a sort of plucky Champions League regular um, is worthy of this type of results. Like, I don't see why this is, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back um, in his tenure. Yeah, and I would have, I would have given him probably until the World Cup break or close to it because I don't think Chelsea were realistically going to challenge for the league this year based on their transfers anyways which means and they're still that, sixth well in right the league. And, and you know six match days in they're they're only you know five points off of first which is why like yes we talked about how they're they lacked a certain verve or entertainment value presumably because they can't score goals uh but it really doesn't make sense to it just seems like a huge overreaction uh and the fact that they were able to get the potter deal tied up within basically within like 12 hours like they sacked Tuchel everyone was like oh it's gonna be Potter and then you know 24 hours later they were posting the you know Potter has arrived on a, a five-year deal etc cetera, etc cetera. um you know suggests that clearly this had probably been in the works for a little while longer than just the one no, yeah Todd Bowley has always wanted his people in right. the positions uh but I will say fair play to Graham Potter by the way because I remember when Arsenal were first in the Europa League after dropping down from the Champions League in 2016 maybe or 2015 and one of the teams in their group stage was Graham Potter's Ostersons uh which was notable because at the time they had uh I forget I think Sardar Azmoun one of the Ara- Iranian strikers who later ended up maybe at Brighton briefly uh or certainly making a big move elsewhere I'll have to check this but fair play to, to him Zenit. yeah you know what yeah I think it was Zenit uh to Zenit that he went but anyways the point is Soccer, in theory, should operate just like any other sort of specialized marketplace where if you do well enough at one company or, or team and, you know, one of the biggest, you know, whether it's like the big three consulting firms or whatever that may be, if one of them poaches you, uh, like you've earned that move. So he set up Brighton incredibly well, especially with, uh, you know, the Seagulls getting 21 million in compensation for him and his staff. He does. He's taking basically his entire backroom with him as well. Uh, and leaving as of right now, Adam Lalana as player manager, and really there isn't, there aren't that many big names on the the managerial market, aside from someone like Pochettino, who I don't think would be a good fit at all. So I wonder if Brighton is going to go a bit off the radar as well and try and find, you know, an, another up and coming coach to to fit into their system. But I think yeah. Pochettino at Brighton would be awesome. Like that would be a great throwback to when he was at Southampton and he was making them overperform with, you know, the Dejan Lovren at center back. Um, uh, I forget who else, but De- yeah, De- Schneiderlin, <laughs> Schneiderlin, yeah, Morgan Schneiderlin. I think yeah. like there, there's a very similar vibe to when Pochettino takes over at a club like Espanol in Southampton and he really gets the players to buy into his system. And I think at Brighton, there are a lot of there are a lot of players that Pochettino could mold and improve, and I think it's a pretty similar situation as you know the Southampton gig. Obviously, you know he's just I think coming it's from just, coaching PSG, but yeah, I think it's he's coming from coaching PSG. Also, given the form Brighton have been in in the league, it's a tough act to follow. Um, like, what would the new manager bump be for a club like this? It'd be a new manager regression, and so I think Pochettino is probably trying to be very careful on how to protect his, you know, admittedly somewhat damaged reputation. Right. And he right was now. He, was, he was two he was one B on the shortlist for the Chelsea job. Right. Potter was one A. 
Yeah, and so I think the Brighton job could be very interesting. I just think it's hard to see him surpassing Potter in this system, and I think that's, that's why I difficult. Think, yeah, I think they'll go for someone in the championship, honestly. I think they'll find a young championship manager. Hear me out. Scott Parker, right back in it. (laughs) Like, but you joke, but like that wouldn't be the worst appointment in the world. Although it would be, I think, weird optics. But, uh, you know, on the Chelsea side of things, uh, you know, it's likely that the game this weekend will not happen. But after that, Chelsea have Salzburg, Liverpool, uh, both away. And then Crystal Palace, Sorry, Chelsea, uh, Salzburg and Liverpool uh, at the bridge and then Crystal Palace away before uh, hosting AC Milan. So not the easiest run-in, uh, although they do have the international break in about a week and a half. So presumably plenty of time to sort of bed in a new team there. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Do you, I, know, I, do you guys I, know who else thought it was hard to uh, surpass Potter? Lord Voldemort? Yeah, Lord Voldemort. <laughs> Yeah, I will say, I, 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 <laughs> Tom I, I, Riddle for manager. Yeah, Tom Riddle. <laughs> yeah, dude, Azkaban for uh, uh, they should rename Stanford Bridge. But I, we knew that this was going to bring out like a, an insepid era of Harry Potter shit posting. Uh, but it's good to see that we saw it anyways. But <laughs> anyways, no, no uh, JK propaganda on this podcast. No, we're we're not we're not we're not like that. But. Uh, is there anything else that we want to talk about in terms of Chelsea or Brighton, or shall we move on to uh, the other matches in Europe from this last week? Why don't we hit the other matches? Take us, take us away. Oh, I'll take us away. All right. Uh, it's funny how every year it seems like one of the Tuesday slash Wednesday slate gets all of the marquee fixtures. And then the other one ends up being crap. And it's remarkable how that's true literally every single year. Uh, but running through the other matches on Tuesday, Milan drew 1-1 with Salzburg, actually came from behind in that one, uh, did AC Milan. Madrid were held at bay for about 45 minutes with Benzema going off injured in the 30th minute uh, by uh, a buoyant Celtic, but they ended up putting three past them in a matter of about 15 minutes in the second half. With uh, a vintage Eden Hazard performance. Yeah, really good Eden Hazard performance. He had a goal and two assists, uh, or a goal and one assist, but looked pretty good. Uh, Shakhtar Donetsk handled RB Leipzig and ended up getting Domenico Tedesco sacked in the process. Marco Rosa uh, has joined Leipzig to fill that void. Which makes Jesse Marsh look a lot better in retrospect, you know, because Tedesco came in post-Marsh, lasted just 38 games. Um, and I think the Leipzig project... It is, stalled a bit, yeah. It stalled a bit. Also, shout out to Shakhtar Donetsk, who I believe fairly like just recently we were able to sort of resume full training um obviously the the ukrainian side sans you know the normal uh slate of brazilians is a lot more you know ukrainian in makeup and so i think this is a fairly yeah, morale they, boosting win both for the club and i have to imagine for you know the country absolutely um, as well and they moved their operation over the summer from Donbass into Kiev. Yeah, into Kiev, which is so cool. They're totally not, you know, they're playing with not a full hand here just in terms of their resources. So it was very cool to see them go out and beat a team like RB Leipzig. It was a very feel-good moment. Yeah, and uh, shout out to Mikhailo Mudrik, who almost joined Arsenal this last transfer window and has been angling for that move in the press. 21 years old, two, two assists and a goal. Uh, he looked really, really good. 
Group G, which I feel like will not really produce that many interesting fixtures. Uh, Dortmund uh, smoked Copenhagen and City breezed past uh, Sevilla with another uh, two goals from Erling Holland, who only needed 70 minutes this time to get it done. But Sevilla, who are obviously uh, finding themselves in some dire straits, went with Isco as a false nine, Papu Gomez as a right winger, and uh, Alex Tellis as a left winger, which I think shows you a bit about the state of the club, certainly suffering for their uh, post-Manchi recruitment, I would say. Yeah, Sevilla are in, are in bad shape. I mean, this is following their smackdown at home just over the weekend by Barcelona, 3-0. Seven goals conceded admittedly against two, you know, top opponents in two games is bad, but this team lacks basically any direction. And you look at their bench and it's just like, I don't even know how you pick a squad out of this. I mean, Kasper Dolberg is playing for them now. I didn't even realize this until, you know, this past weekend, but they picked up Yanazai on a free from Sociedad. Unfortunately, this team has kind of become a strange collection of aging top players and, you know, mid-career players that are all about, you know, 78 rated quality right now. And I think it makes it very difficult to pick a consistent and winning team from that type of squad. Lopetegui's days are certainly numbered. Yeah, certainly seems like their magic has run out. Uh, and, you know, being an island of misfit toys doesn't really work when all the players that you're bringing in are either uh, in their peak or sort of post their prime, like Fernando, et cetera, et cetera, who's obviously been there for a little bit of a long, uh, for a little while now. But uh, in Group H, uh, the lesser of the two matches saw Benfica beat uh, Champions League returnees Maccabee Haifa 2-0, including a goal that was probably the best goal of the entire match week from uh, Alex Grimaldo, who it was sort of a, you know, that goal from Van Bronckhurst against Uruguay in the 2010 World Cup. Yep. Yeah, kind of reminded me of that a little bit. Uh, but he certainly showed his quality 2 0 there. But then the, the biggest marquee fixture of the weekend, or of the weekend rather, of the match week, saw uh, PSG get out to an early 2 0 lead over Juventus. Weston McKinney pulled one back uh, for the Bianco Neri, but PSG continued to look the real deal playing this, you know, 3-4-3. And Messi, Mbappe, Neymar, uh, Eminem was cooking. Yeah, they were cooking. Um, I think they would have liked to have grabbed a third, but I think this was a fairly good money win for them. Also, they have at this point, you know, one of the deepest midfields in Europe, especially for a team that seems set up to only play with two center midfielders in this game it was Vitinha and Verratti but they were able to bring new signing Carlos Soler off the bench then Renato Sanchez and they still left um, Fabian Ruiz who's another pickup I actually think you know earlier in the summer we were talking about how sensible their chances are I think they've over indexed on you know good midfield signings that there simply aren't enough minutes to go around for um, but I think PSG are set up for big things this season in Europe. Yeah, and then moving on to Wednesday, there are a couple of games that I think we'll talk about in depth, but we'll run through the the slate before we get there. Uh, Ajax, in the early game, uh, destroyed Rangers 4-0. Ajax are going to be a real handful for 
uh, both Napoli and Liverpool in that group. I think it's going to be between those three. Uh, Atleti needed an, 11, uh, an 11th minute of stoppage time goal from uh, Antoine Griezmann. Actually, three goals after the 90-minute mark. All of the one. goals. Yeah. All of the goals, including a late penalty conceded by Mario Hermoso. Uh, we should talk... Actually, let's talk for a second about the Griezmann situation because uh, allegedly Atleti have to exercise this buyout or this this uh, this transfer for him if he plays above a certain percentage of minutes. And in order to not pay this fee, they've decided to just bring him on in like the 66th minute or 62nd minute of every single way. Yeah, of every single game. But Nick, you pointed out that he's kind of cooking too. It's one of those situations that makes you realize you really can put basically you know, anything in a contract, as long as both sides agree to it. I have to wonder, though, who was asking for this, right? Like, why? I assume from Barcelona's perspective, they would rather have it in the deal that, you know, if he played, you know, 20 plus games in the second season of the loan, then the buy option needs to be exercised by the terms of the contract. I'm just imagining like how this negotiation actually happened. And if Simeone always like even last season knew he's like, oh, super sub Griezmann year two is going to be the move. Um, but, and I've seen these contracts go wrong. Um, I mean, famously, you know, Barcelona had uh, their contract with Tiago before he went to Bayern um, related to how large his release clause was dependent on him playing a certain percentage of, you know, available minutes to him, aka, you know, games when he was injured wouldn't count. And Barcelona fell like 1.2% below the minutes requirement, which is why Bayern were able to buy him, you know, on the cheap a decade ago. So maybe it's just a Barcelona thing, and that wouldn't surprise me very much either. Yeah, certainly an interesting situation. And the fact that it's been so consistent, uh, that's pretty funny. But the other match in Group B saw a uh, Club Brugge side that's without a bunch of their better players uh, defeat Bayer Leverkusen, who are another team that's quietly in free fall. They've lost six of seven uh, in the Bundesliga and in Europe as well. And for a team that has some big names, uh, they are probably, again, going to be faced with a coaching change pretty soon. Uh, Group C saw Bayern beat Inter 2-0. Bayern got the early goal through Leroy Zane, and then they sort of just suffocated Inter to death. Uh, Inter didn't look all that good on the day, but uh, you know Bayern, I think, played with a lot of confidence, and you know they are such a deep team again. It's it's kind of insane. Uh, and Barca, you know, as you mentioned in the in the intro, picked up a, a huge five one win. Yeah, I mean the five one win, it was against Pilsen, but I think you know you get the job done. I thought. Lewandowski obviously getting his first hat trick for the club and then um, Dembele just wreaking havoc. And I think the pick of the goals was definitely when Dembele flicked the ball over the top um, with this really high arcing scoop pass and then Ferran Torres, you know, volleying it first time off the bench in. So I think an expected victory, but we'll, we'll take it. In the, I feel a little bad for Inter though, who you know lost the Milan derby this weekend, three to two. They now lose this game again, and I feel like their kind of European curse over the last few years seems set to continue. Although uh, Onana, who I think made his debut for Inter in this game, 
was excellent to stop what was admittedly, you know, a Bayern barrage. And I think he had 10 saves overall. So I think Group C remains the group of death. Um, but this is obviously a blow, I think, for Inter's chances of progressing. Elsewhere uh, in Group D, which is a pretty underwhelming group, uh, if we're being honest, uh, Sporting beat Frankfurt 3-0, and Spurs were stymied for a lot of the game. But then eventually uh, they were a man up after Chancel and Memba, throwback, uh, got sent off right after halftime. But uh, Richarlison scored a brace, his first two goals uh, for Spurs this season. And uh, Spurs pick up the the win in match week one. But the biggest match that we've yet to talk about from Wednesday's Champions League fixtures uh, is Napoli beating the absolute breaks off of Liverpool in Napoli in Napoli in Naples. Uh, they went in up, Napoli. In Napoli. <laughs> um, yeah, apparently West Ham is at Naples soon. I feel like Nap or Napoli, whatever you just said, is like the homeland of Snapple. Yeah, exactly. Like it's like champagne, but Snapple. Yeah. Even otherwise, um, it's just otherwise it's just you know Arizona iced tea. Yeah, exactly. They exactly. Import it from Apple. <laughs> um, but Liverpool went down in this game three uh, nil before halftime, four nil right after halftime. But I'm not even joking when I say that it could have been like literally six nil. It could have been way worse. It could have been way it worse. Been way Oshman worse. missed a penalty, uh, cost me nineteen dollars in doing so, but missed a penalty and also went off injured. But it didn't matter. As Gio Simeone, uh, on loan from Salernitana, I believe, uh, oh sorry, on loan from Hellas Verona, scored uh, his first Champions League goal. He actually has a tattoo that he got when he was 13 of the Champions League logo that he kissed, which is pretty cool. But longtime uh, Liverpool target uh, Peter Zielinski scored a brace, and really the story of this game was just Liverpool's back four just truly, truly looked atrocious. Uh, the only two players who I thought played well for Liverpool were Luis Diaz and Harvey Elliott. Uh, and Allison was all right, but there's only so much you can do uh, when you're being hung out to dry. And I think, again, for not the first time this season, some clips of Virgil van Dijk and Trent Alexander-Arnold's questionable defensive efforts were no, and here's being the thing. highlighted. This is where I'll jump in, because I definitely like van Dijk and Trent look very burnt out. But at the end of the day... They can only do so much when they're trying to compensate for James Milner and Fabinho, who looks like a shadow of himself in the DM role this season, playing ahead of them. And like, of course, they're going to have to account for like acres of open space when James Milner is like misplaying passes and like not winning his duels. Fabinho only won two out of six of his duels. Uh, James Milner was like everywhere on the pitch except for left sided center midfield, which was his position on the night like this is just it was a shambles it was an utter shambles and I, I really don't know like what more I can say other than that I like come on this podcast and I'm progressively more and more annoyed with the state of Liverpool currently and the really bad thing and this is articulated really well in a piece that I read today uh, from James Pierce in The Athletic is that Liverpool for the first time under Klopp in somewhat reminiscent to his seventh season with Borussia Dortmund it looks like there's not as much buy-in in the methods from the players as there usually is and you made an interesting point Nathan about how Liverpool's best players in the day were Luis Diaz and Harvey Elliott and what are the two things those guys have in common like they haven't been in the fabric for as long as everyone else like Luis Diaz has been around for you know about seven or eight months now Harvey Elliott 
uh, has been around for a bit longer, but he hasn't had as much game time. And it just seems like there is a malaise that has washed over this Liverpool squad that has sort of reduced their you know, mentality, monster energy into like middling energy. And we've come to a point where the players, the individual players, like, of course, there are injuries. You know, we saw Thiago make his comeback in this game. We saw Arthur Mello make his debut in this game and look a little off the pace. Uh, Curtis Jones is back. Diego Jota is back. So players are coming back for Liverpool, but it's going to be about these big players for Liverpool, our biggest players, you know, Fabinho, Virgil, Trent, Andy Robertson, who I don't think is guilty, and also Mo Salah, who has been very off the pace at the start of the season, to show some fight back and to, you know, really put their heads down again. And Klopp said after the match that Liverpool need to, quote unquote, reinvent themselves, end quote. And for someone who is as notoriously stubborn as Klopp during some instances, I think the fact that he is recognizing this and saying it publicly shows that there are going to be some some significant changes going forward for Liverpool. And I think they have to be because Napoli sliced, absolutely sliced through them in what was their worst defeat in Europe since 1966 under Bill Shankly. I saw an interesting stat that um, Jurgen Klopp has never won at the at Napoli's home stadium, which is what the it's the Maradona Stadium now, right? Um, yes. He's lost with them at Mines, I believe, um, or maybe he just lost twice with Dortmund and twice with Liverpool, but he has never won at Napoli away. But I don't think that is you know the causal link here. I think earlier on in this season, you know, I think there were a lot of injuries for Liverpool, and we were willing to chalk a lot of the poor performance due to missing personnel which is definitely part of the case but I think this was the game where it seemed like there was a complete you know switching off mentally and players that you expect to perform simply were not performing up to the level right and you know I can't think that it's the case that Van Dyke is only you know effective as a defender when he's got like the first choice midfield three in front of him um, I think that I don't think he would say that either. And so I think the shocking nature of the defensive display was a really, really bad sign. And I think Klopp needs to really shift things around. I know they don't really have like who's the backup right back for Liverpool? Calvin it's, Ramsey, who they Calvin. brought in over the summer from Aberdeen, who is yet to feature because he got injured in preseason. Yeah, see, I almost feel like... Oh, my word. I forgot to mention, don't even talk about Joe Gomez, who also had just an absolutely torrid display. Yeah, but I feel like, you know, one path forward to sort of move this team um, would be kind of the long-awaited, you know, attempt to see how Trent can do in center midfield. Um, But I think that lack of depth at the right-back position, you know, clearly although maybe joe gomez as a right back um i don't know um sort of cuts off that opportunity on the flip side though i don't want to yeah i think we should give napoli credit who are the masters of reinventing themselves and the masters of the transfer market fully moving on from kind of the previous generation of the last few years fabian ruiz moving on um juice mertens moving to galatasaray koulibaly moving to um chelsea and they just brought in so many good players this summer. Raspadori, um, who's been tipped for big things for a few years now from Sassuolo, and Dombele from Spurs. 
Giovanni Simeone, who's had one of those careers where I think he's slowly ratcheting up his level and now at the age of 27. Yeah, um, real Kevin Lasagna type dude. I feel like they <laughs> exist. I feel like they exist in Serie A more than any other league. Uh, where like you'll have a play like Bellotti is a good example of yeah that, you know, I was just thinking of that where, where you'll have a guy who scores like 12 goals in 30 appearances at like each tier of team yep. from like relegation all the way up to like big six or big yep. five yep also K- Caleb can you just uh speak briefly on Kvicha Kvarakskelia because I think he's the the big gem that they've unearthed so yeah far. so I I was you know I was just working down to that because they've brought in a lot of players this summer. Minjay Kim from Fenerbahce, Leo Ostegaard from Brighton, but, uh, you know, Zembo and Gisa from Fulham, Matias Oliveira, who um, was one of the best players for Hitafe last year. Um, but yeah, Kavicha Kavarachkilia, the young Georgian, 21 years old, born in February, you know, 2001, has four goals and an assist in his first five Serie A games. He comes from uh, Dinamo Batumi. Is that in yeah, Georgia? It's in Georgia. Which in is Georgia. crazy because um, imagine stunting and playing away games in like Tbilisi and Rustavi and then going to play against Liverpool and just donging them for like yeah. Um, he was he, incredible. Him, him, the combo link up between him and Angisa, who I think is a player that has been underrated for quite some time. I thought he was immense at Fulham and I'm glad to see him, you know, finally producing on the Champions League stage was incredible and in Kavrakasha how do you oh man we have we're, to, we're gonna have to figure this out because this guy is good yeah this, this guy is, exactly yeah and and I think it speaks to just the scouting at Napoli like he really he he went from playing in the Georgian league where he was dominant after being like okay as like a teenager in the Russian league to being one of the breakout stars so far in Syria and in Europe um, and I think Spalletti and, and, you know, previous coaches have all really been singing his praises. He also has those Grealish calves, um, which I think only, yes. uh, <laughs> only portends well. And I think he is, he's definitely one to watch. He has eight goals in 17 games for the Georgian national team. And I have to imagine the Georgian national team isn't scoring all that many goals. Um, so this guy's legit and, and is an X factor that I will, I will have my eye on for, for the rest of this season, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he. I think he has attempted more dribbles than any player in the top five leagues, I believe, this year, with the exception of maybe either Neymar or, or Mbappe. I forget. Messi. Oh, yeah, sorry, Messi. Uh, but yeah, what a ridiculous performance. Uh, and I think Oshiman could have scored two or three if he hadn't gone off with what looked like a hamstring injury. But uh, yeah, and and obviously this Liverpool result is coming on the back of a nil-nil draw in the Merseyside derby. Uh, this past weekend in which somehow Jordan Pickford was man of the match, but it's sort of more of the same. And my, I guess my critique of Klopp is that for all of his excellent coaching, there is a sort of unwillingness to deviate from his formation and his plan. And in fairness to him, I think his plan is what has gotten the best out of a team that, probably wasn't on paper as good as Man City at times. Uh, but, uh, and I know injuries are playing a part in this. I just wonder if maybe a slightly more pragmatic approach could be to shift formation somehow, whether that be to go to like a 3-4-1-2 or a 3-4-2-1 to offset some of the losses or injuries in midfield and also maybe going to a back three to 
helped, you know, I guess strengthen Virgil van Dyke's position. I'm not totally sure if there is a real answer, but uh, I did see the first murmurs of discontent about sort of wanting maybe Klopp out on football Twitter, which I think is a little premature. But, you know, in a world where Thomas Tuchel can get sacked for, you know, basically six weeks of bad play, this is bordering on, I think, sort of question mark territory for Liverpool and you know, I don't think that Nick, we've talked about this in the past, but I don't think there's any world in which Klopp would ever be sacked uh, because I think his respect and his ties to the club are too strong. But you have to wonder uh, what would it take for that relationship to deteriorate? Because the next couple of weeks see, you know, Liverpool go to uh, or Liverpool host Wolves and Ajax, go to Stamford Bridge uh, and then host Brighton. So what would I guess the time frame look like for Liverpool to write this ship? Um, I mean that's a great question. I don't think Liverpool will ever sack Jurgen Klopp. I think he's done so much to rebuild the positivity around the club, the infrastructure of the club, a lot of you know the AXA training center, the design of that, um, the sports science that Liverpool have brought in uh, to the Premier League and to you know Liverpool in general. He's really rehabbed the image of the club as well. I don't think there's a world in which, you know, FSG sack him quite unceremoniously. I think if anything, there would be like a mutual parting of the ways at the end of the season. He's just signed a new contract at the end of last season. So there's that to consider as well. I just think that some of this, and I agree with you, Nathan, completely on the fact that Klopp is a little stubborn with the system sometimes. However, I do think a lot of this is down to we know that he wanted another midfielder in the summer. We know that was a really in Chiuameni. Uh, we know that you know they spent a lot of money on Darwin Nunez. There probably needed to be more money spent on the midfield and potentially on assuring up the the center back and the right back positions. I just think there's a lot of gaping holes in this team right now that needed refreshing in the summer, and I think you're seeing it from players like Virgil and from Trent certainly from Hendo and Milner, and now even from Salah and Firmino as well, where they play, this is Liverpool team that played every game available last season, and they're coming into this game, or they're coming into the season with weary legs and are probably a little beaten down from the way that last season ended for them in losing the Champions League and losing the Premier League. So I think there's several moral hills to climb, or morale hills to climb, rather, and there's also... Fitness moral hills. Hill to climb is like Sisyphus, but yeah. yeah. There's also uh, fitness hills, and I think there's uh, squad deficiency hills as well. So I think there's a lot to figure out for Klopp. However, I'm not sure that he's going anywhere anytime soon. Very well. On to some brief Europa League commentary uh, and Europa Conference League commentary. Uh, just a rundown of some of the big matches today. Arsenal beat Zurich uh, 2-1 with a goal and an assist each from Marquinhos and Eddie Nketiah. Uh, Roma lost to Ludogorets, who I had forgotten about because they were the team that Mesut Ozil scored that goal against back in like 2015. And then was I the really one where he hit. sat down like four he sat people. down two players and then shipped yeah. the keeper. Uh, let's see, Sociedad beat United on a pretty questionable penalty, but <laughs> to be fair, there was a less questionable penalty that didn't get given against Lissandra Martinez, so uh, it sort of evens out in my eyes. And I think again. We can talk about United for a second because this is a team that started today. Uh, Casemiro and Anthony 
and Erickson and Fred and Malasia and Lindelof and Maguire and still couldn't beat a, a, a full strength Sociedad team at Old Trafford coming off of a resounding win this last weekend against United who haven't won at Old Trafford since against Arsenal, Arsenal rather against Arsenal who haven't won at Old Trafford since before I was a teenager basically or haven't won there in the Premier League so again I, I still think our our earlier assessment of United is fairly spot on even though they did pick up that win against Arsenal uh you know one match day doesn't change my outlook on them and I still think that this is a team that is going to really struggle to compete uh for top four and in the Europa League because they still have you know a trip to Transnistria coming up they've still got to go you know to Sociedad who I think will probably be better the next time they play each other uh they should be able to beat Ammonia and Nicosia but Nick or Caleb rather maybe your ancestral <laughs> homeland can sort of damage them a little bit I don't know I'm still not I'm still not sold on this United team uh and I will say you Arsenal losing to United at Old Trafford to end the unbeaten start to the season was so obvious to me that I didn't even think we were going to get any points out of it. I was just like, yep, this is a schedule loss. Like, we'll leave it at that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. You can't... <laughs> like, you may have believed that, but I don't believe that you believe no, that. No, dude. Nathan, um, I know Nathan doesn't pick and choose his battles that carefully yeah. by now. Nathan, you probably lost like $200 betting on United <laughs> to win at Old Trafford. <laughs> so, and that was a knowing laugh. So, uh, listeners, we'll leave it up to you to decide what was actually going on in Nathan's head. Um, I think also, you know, Sociedad are a quality team. Let's not yeah. forget that either. Um, yeah, they're better, evidently better than United. So. Yes. Um, who who have a troubled history playing Basque teams in the Europa League. I mean, indeed, who can indeed. forget, uh, you know, Bielsa's Bilbao beating down Man U in the knockout rounds i think four two at old trafford um yeah that was awesome uh i think also on the roma ludigrets my take now is ludigrets are going to be like the bodo glimpse of last season for roma <laughs> which <laughs> which which can only mean that oh. roma will lose to them about three more times this season and um, then eventually just and like then win the europa shreds. league and then and win, win the europa, europa league. league so you heard it here first um roma are winning the europa league also, Union Berlin, in their is is this their European debut? Have they been in Europe before? Certainly, their their first European appearance in quite some time. Losing to Union Saint Gilles. Yeah, I went to the. Oh, so fun fact about USG. So when I was in Brussels this summer, I was trying to get to as many of you know the the, the soccer stadiums that I could, but. Anderlecht is in like uh, it's basically in like the Wellesley of 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 Brussels where it would have been like a forty minute like drive or it's a very out. Massachusetts yeah. geographical uh, reference. Yeah, there. I was like, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but um, but but USG play in this awesome Art Deco stadium like twenty minutes away via um via scooter. So I took like a Lime scooter. This is not a, a product placement type thing, but again, Lime, uh, please hit me up. Uh, before I actually crashed on the train tracks in a lime scooter, but I took a I took a train or I took a, I took the scooter rather to their stadium, hoping to go and get a kit uh, at um, you know because obviously I was looking forward to you know adding to my kit collection at the Stade Joseph Marien in Brussels. But their stadium is awesome. It's like this giant bowl with this like Art Deco facade. Uh, I go in and I'm like, 
uh, I don't really speak French. I'm like, uh, j'aime les maillots. Like, I love the, the shirt. I love the kit. Uh, can I buy it? And the guy was like, uh, no, we don't sell them if, unless you don't, unless you have like a club card and our new order like isn't in yet. But then he was like, uh, he was like, oh, my name is Mohammed. Like, let's have a beer. So I just sat and had a beer, like a Jupiler uh, with this dude for free. Uh, and then I just continued along my merry way. But yeah, that's my, my union St. Jill Law story. Did you crash the Lime scooter on the train tracks before or after the beer with Muhammad? That was actually the next day. So don't okay. worry. I'm not like implicating myself massively here. <laughs> Uh, but no, USG won the regular season championship for uh, in Brussels in Belgium. In Brussels, in Belgium, yeah. But then they and they're also the year. team that Rangers yeah. knocked out of the qualifying round. Yeah they, yeah, they came back and Malik Tillman scored that goal to send them through to the group stage. So they have a lot of pedigree as of right now uh, in Europe, and I think are going to cause some upsets in the Europa League. Yeah, sure. they have a squad full of like absolute no name players, which is always the kind of team to look out for. But you mentioned Union Berlin before Nick, <laughs> you have to go. Uh, so we've gone, we've sort of oscillated between the Bundesliga being on and the Bundesliga being off. And obviously there was a marquee fixture this last weekend that we had hinted about uh, in, you know, the previous podcast, but the two leaders of the Bundesliga tied on points uh, met, uh, and shockingly to ourselves, um, Union Berlin picked up a home draw 1-1, actually going out in front of Bayern before hanging on to a 1-1 uh, result in a game that was like slightly better than you would have expected, uh, despite being out past 630 to 127. Uh, yeah, so and shout out Union Berlin. <laughs> shout out Union Berlin. And also looking at the Bundesliga table now, who is on top? Not Bayern Munich. Do you guys know? Uh, Freiburg or Dortmund? Yeah, Freiburg. Freiburg. On 12 points. Dortmund on 12 points. Bayern with that draw on 11 points, although they still have far and away the biggest goal difference in the league. And the top five are separated by two points. The top seven separated by three points. Um, and the top 10 separated by four points. Sure. Let's we can keep going. I, I yeah, ten and eleven. Leipzig kind of dropped. Separated by just twelve, just points twelve too. points. Which at this point in the season, oh my god, Bakum, put put your money down now. Um, you know, <laughs> I think once again we have to, we have to uh, wear some egg on our faces oh, for our premature calling. Our premature yeah. calling of the. Oh no, I'm gonna pull a Nathan. Bundesliga. See, I always knew the Bundesliga was in play. I ch- I chalked this off as a draw. <laughs> Don't what? listen to the podcast tape from last week, but I've, I'm ride or die Union. Um, big <laughs> so, fuck guy. Yeah, big. Yeah, Americans doing well in the Champions League and in the Bundesliga. Uh, Peapock, yeah, I think. The head coach of Union Berlin, Urs Fischer, just looks like my orthodontist, which is really rattling because I'll see him on the sideline wearing his like square rimmed glasses and I'm like, oh no, I forgot to wear my headgear again. But uh, yeah, they're a fun team. Oh God! Did this you have like a really, a kid? Like, dude? Nathan has vented about a lot of crap on this episode. I feel like this has been very cathartic for you in a way. There's been a you lot. You had the, the lime skewer debacle, the headgear. This, uh, this, is, this is not. Uh, <laughs> we didn't even not... talk about the queen dying. Really, like <laughs> we haven't even we haven't even scratched the tip of the ice. Okay, but... I think I think we're getting a little way. Nathan, are there any Europa Conference League games? That you want to to shout out? Um, uh, not no, West, no, we West need to move Ham, on. West West Ham went behind. Oh my god, Tua, uh, but then they ended up winning. <laughs> Who cares? Uh, but 
I guess the last thing that we want to talk about is the fact that it's very possible that we have no prem fixtures, uh, no fixtures throughout the English league and also the Scottish league uh, this weekend uh, as a result of Queen Elizabeth's passing. Uh, it's sort of unknown. The clubs are meeting tomorrow morning to decide, but tomorrow's fixtures have already been chalked off uh, in the championship with Burnley's match getting postponed. And the consensus, at least online, is that this weekend's matches will be uh, postponed. I feel like, um, you know, in the past, soccer has gone on while the more royal sports uh, of cricket and rugby have been paused. But in a soccer schedule that is already crazy cramped this season, I almost wonder if, you know, at some point the Premier League has to actually put its foot down as sort of like an international business and and play these games otherwise i just don't know where it's going to get made up um yeah i mean it's a difficult situation right, obviously right. this is the passing of the longest reigning monarch in the history of the country you know she's a massive cultural figure in britain not only in britain but a worldwide cultural figure she's adored by many people of the in the british public um although you know definitely a controversial figure but we don't need to get into that here I wouldn't be shocked if there were no Premier League games this weekend. I think um, a national period of mourning is probably justified somewhat um, for someone of that stature to have passed away and for you know the weekend to be declared in her remembrance. I can totally see that happening. But yeah, I agree, Nathan. I think it's just an unfortunate circumstance um, all around. And I just think it's one of those things where occasionally you know, there are some things that are bigger than soccer. And I think the passing of Queen Elizabeth II on this weekend is probably bigger than soccer. I think if we can disrupt the entire European soccer calendar to have a World Cup in Qatar, we can certainly disrupt a weekend of British football for the Queen's passing. Yeah, you're probably right. But in the event that those games do get postponed, uh, there is still a full slate of games going on on the continent, highlighted by Leipzig-Dortmund on Saturday. Uh, at Letty Celta Vigo also on Saturday and then an early fixture between Madrid and Mallorca on Sunday morning if you're in the mood for goals and I would certainly try and tune into both the Union Berlin Köln games and the Freiburg Mönchengladbach games uh, as well Monica Leon caps it off on Sunday also uh, Betis Villarreal too. And Betis Villarreal on Saturday afternoon uh, or the evening or sorry excuse me the evening game on on Sunday yeah so Plenty of uh, good fixtures to go around, and obviously next week is another European match week featuring Bayern Barca, Liverpool Ajax, uh, Madrid Leipzig, and uh, I guess we'll have to keep people updated. Oh, and City Dortmund as well, so we'll keep people updated uh, on all these situations going forward. But I think we touched on a lot today, uh, and uh, I guess until next time, I've been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Reds. Nick Vinden. We will see you all next time.